getting started um, today, just doing a spaces here, talking about the issues about our machine. So I'm going to let everybody have a bit of time to get in and get started, and then we'll get going as I get the hang of it. AC Omega, Kelsey, how you doing? And uh, we'll get back to it. Let me get to where I can promote this sucker. Hang on. It said I have to reconnect. Reconnect. Okay, something happened. Anyway, um, let me share this on my wall. And if you'll share it as well, that would be wunderbar. Okay. I think I've got everything properly here. And we shall get going in two minutes as I get my phone and my rig set up in two minutes. I have to use a hearing device, as you may know. I have a hearing handicap. It's part of what makes me come across as being so intense or so loud. Um, or sometimes when you hear videos in my program, they can be incredibly loud. And it's mainly because I have to uh, crank things up so I could hear. Otherwise, I just wouldn't be able to hear uh, at all, right? And so it takes me a minute uh, as I get set up here that I have to uh, adjust all my equipment. So I'm able to uh, hear everything. And let me make sure I've got my um, let me make sure I got my microphone set right. Stand by. Okay, so there's a big battle going on. If you think about what's out there in this, I'm not going to call it an industry because it should never be an industry, but this issue of election integrity, and thank all of you, by the way. Thank you. Hey, Helen, thank you, everybody, for sharing this. There's a big battle over this discussion of voting machines. And if you followed my program this morning where I covered smacking Fanny and what's going on with Fanny Willis and her effectively sitting on the witness stand having to answer questions. I think when you watch, and, and this is unfortunately how it has to be learned, to understand the battle we as conservatives 
have in everything that has to do with elections, election integrity, election transparency, or anything like that, if you were to watch the cases that transpired, and we'll just use Carrie Lake for an example, you as a conservative would sit there watching the county supervisors and election supervisors and county recorder in Maricopa, literally you would know they were lying on the witness stand. And most people will point that out. Well, they're just lying and, and you know, they shouldn't be lying and that's wrong. And can't we catch them? And many people have a bit of difficulty with this because what I've realized is we tend to judge these officials by how we would do it. And, the, and, and that's where the catch arrives in every bit of this is because the battle that they're engaging with us in court is a battle by which they are using the system and they are using words that allow them to, with technicalities, claim they are not guilty of perjury but yet you know this to be the case that they are not in any way they are not in any way telling the truth and what i want people to do is i want people to understand that we need to slow down and we need to, and it's just true, we need to learn what we can learn from the left. Now, if you're a conservative, it's distasteful to protest. You were never going to think, hey, I got to cover my face to go into public and you're not going to burn things down to try to get restitution. But, and, and that's not what I'm recommending. I am submitting to you that if anything the left has learned about us and manipulating us, they have learned the art of lawfare. They have learned the art of wiggling by or getting by or getting out of sticky situations where Republicans have not learned that. So what I'm suggesting in many ways is that we need to begin seriously to study the left. And in that, 
when we study in election cases like Kerry Lakes and we study their answers, I think it's imperative for us when we know that they're fudging to stop expecting the system to recognize it and then to recognize we have a responsibility. And what is that responsibility? We have a responsibility on the conservative side to understand how they're able to squeak by. Because see, two things happens in this. When we understand how they squeak by, we are also learning how to ask more direct questions that will get us the answers we need in court. And I'll give you an example using Fannie Willis, or as we now know, Fannie Willis, as we fawn over her. I go to the part where the questioning, the examination was being done of Nathan, um, her fellow. And he was answering a question that he was justifying that he was answering it right on his original interrogatories. Now, just so you understand what an interrogatory is, if you've never come across that word as it comes into suits, when, when you're sued or summoned or whatever the case may be, some of the very first part of it is called interrogatories. It's the questions that whoever wants you to answer, wants to know about you, whatever. And you have to, as part of your reply and being sued, you have to answer those interrogatories. And so it's the first bite at the apple of asking you questions. And if it's in uh, a protracted process, aside from the interrogatories, which establishes a baseline, then after what comes next is the depositions where your questions face to face and they get to ask more questions. Well, if you watched Nathan trying to skirt around the issue of saying that he and Fonny were actually sexually involved before this Trump indictment and everything else, what they needed to do at all costs is they needed to stay away from ironically as it is what's called a piercing event that piercing event is if they can establish that nathan and fanny were sexual partners prior to the trump indictments and everything else then it shows how this case can really be kicked to the curb or how their part in the case can be kicked to the curb very fast now of course fanny and Nathan, and I'm going to call her Fanny. I can't say Fanny. Sorry. That's just Fanny. She wants to be called Fanny. Anyway, Fanny and Nathan don't want that discovered because that's the nail, the, the bigger death nail to them outside of financial improprieties. And so as you watched Nathan reply, the attorney did corner him by saying, you basically said that you didn't have a sexual relationship with fanny and he was speaking uh of the fellow's divorce proceedings and the interrogatories that the guy answered in his divorce and of course he didn't want to say he was an adulterer 
Well, if you watch Nathan's testimony, how he's justifying telling the truth is the attorney kept using in your marriage. And so in Nathan's mind, and he's, by the way, he's accurately doing so, the fellow cross-examining him or asking him questions while Nathan's on the stand asked about his marriage. Now, the way Nathan answered is Nathan says, yeah, but my marriage was over. I never had any infidelities in my marriage. Now, the way Nathan was answering the question was the following. The day he walked into the church, he got married. And for whatever period of time he was married, right, to his wife, and then sometime during that marriage, the marriage no longer became a marriage. Now, there can be many definitions for that. Maybe they just stopped having sexual relations or they just hated each other, whatever the case may be, but they stopped. And so he could argue the case that my marriage was over. Now, what he's being cross-examined on is trying to find out, did you lie? Because you really did, in fact, have a sexual relationship prior to your divorce. Now, as you can see the crosshairs here, why this is so important to understand is this is how the system gets away with things. See, technically, Nathan, in his definition set, was in fact telling the truth. Yes, I got married. Yes, I had a marriage. Uh, but the marriage failed. And therefore, I never had uh, an affair during my marriage. Now, in a court of law, that is an actual fact. He did not, in his definition, and by a definition that could be accepted in a court, it was no longer a marriage. Now, that's them skirting under the radar. That's them um, skirting the issue. That's them not necessarily perjuring themselves. But it's a, it's a very fine line, and it's a very fine art. And, and you're right. He's married. It's that simple. He's married. Now, who is at issue here? Who is, who is literally the one who is either answering wrong or doing wrong. Well, in this particular scenario, this is where we as conservatives, and if you were opposing counsel, you have to learn. You have to be able to not get frustrated by this guy skirting the answer. You have to be able to understand, okay, how is this guy answering it where he still stays within a certain modicum of truthfulness. And do I understand how he's using his answer to protect himself? And see, that's a, a deconstruction process. And what I mean by a deconstruction process is to recognize in that moment that he is declaring his marriage was over because it was no longer uh, husband and wife. There were no sexual relations. They uh, professed that they didn't love each other. They had agreed to separate. That's the deal.
Now, the reason I give you this wordsmithing and finesse is because for some reason might might be just not skill of thinking fast enough on one's feet or it might just be the wrong attorneys but but we have to be able to think fast enough fight fast enough and modify fast enough what we're doing to understand their ill intent, understand how our questioning is letting them off the hook, and to be able to redirect it right where you get the definition out. And I've always told you about words. A good example would be how somebody else perceives you. Somebody might perceive me as very hard, very brash, very direct, bull over you. I could see why they could have that about me. The second part of it is, if they did not know of my hearing handicap and what it does to my hearing and having to look direct and then my style of just getting out because I have to raise my level of doing it so I can hear it in my own ears. As you can see, there are literally two right answers, but two totally different definitions of what that is. This is what is going on with all of our fights in the court system when we are discussing how our voting, our voting systems, and the machines used with voting are used. And this is where we lose. So kind of a, as a first assignment of anybody that's interested in any form of election transparency or election verification, I think it would be incredibly important and well worth your time to study the courtroom proceedings of those that you absolutely no are rat bastards but they keep on getting off very simple because it is in that you can fine tune not only your ability to educate others you can fine tune your ability to dig you can fine tune your ability to excavate as you're looking for answers in this system but on our side, to continually get our butts handed to us in court and to not be able to listen and learn and flex and adjust in the face of the enemy, because that's exactly what it is, we're losing. Now, let's set that aside for the moment. In my program this morning, I played a segment by Emerald Robinson from Lindell TV and she is interviewing Peter and I think Peter's in Wisconsin fine researcher deep digger very dedicated to whatever and Peter is telling Emerald hey Fanny might be in trouble here because there are a hundred and sixty eight thousand dollars 
of illegal campaign contributions to her and somebody needs to take this to the sheriff because this is fraud and somebody needs to deal with this. Now, that was pretty much a summation of both Emerald's interview and Peter's pitch of what he found. This is where, as we fight this fight to protect our conservative rights, our freedoms, and our liberties, we must resist the use of words and actions and phrases that we actually cannot prove. And we need to be very detailed on how we execute this battle because a few things happen. Now, I'm going to talk about this as a circle of influence. And here's what I mean by a circle of influence. Number one, when you're a broadcaster of any type and any amount of people follow you, whether it be two or two million, doesn't matter, you have a circle of influence, people that listen to your words. You as an individual in your life, whether it be your children, your family, your church members, whatever the case may be, you too have a circle of influence. Okay? What that means is in this circle of influence, you have to be responsible for your words. You have to be accountable for your words. And Amy, I saw your request. Give me a minute. Let me finish this one statement. Because if you're passing on information and that information is not true, that information is not vetted, or you're not even getting the words right, what it ends up doing is it ends up hurting all of our chances at a case. And a, a very, very good example of this would be, and I'll just use Emerald, to say that Fannie Willis took $168,000 of illegal fraudulent campaign funds. That's a crime. Get the sheriff, lock her up. Because in all of those contributions, and let's just say there were a thousand contributors of that hundred and $68,000. There's probably more than that, but just let's just use that for a moment. Or let's say there was a thousand. When you make that definitive empirical statement, it is fraud. It is illegal money. And that declarative judgment of what you're doing, you are basically assessing that you've done the research and you've verified it. When in reality, what you're looking at is you're looking at a trend or an indicator that makes that $168,000 look highly suspicious. And because it looks highly suspicious, because they're all anonymous donations, that you suggest that an investigation should be open or work should be, you know, dug into to try to find out of all these anonymous, why were they anonymous? 
And were they actually legit? And did they know that money was donated? Meaning you, you got to dig into the finances of it to find it out. But when you immediately proclaim it fraud, and let's say there were a thousand people that donated, if you just have one in that mix, just one in that mix that was a legitimate donor that donated legitimately but anonymous and you've lumped them into it, you have blown your whole evidence file. You don't get a second bite at the apple. Now, how does this relate to circle of influence? Well, with Emerald Robinson as a journalist reporter repeating that, she's you're you're now getting what's called dual imprimaturs. You're looking at Peter and his work and his fine work he's done in election stuff, and he's done well, especially with the smurfing stuff. And then you're looking at Emerald and you're getting, hey, well, she's a well-known journalist. You get her imprimatur. In fact, you get another imprimatur is because, wow, it's on Lindell TV, so it must be true. In those implied imprimaturs, you're assuming right off the fact that they have found fraud and it is a crime. Now, what this does is you continue to get pissed off. You continue to get upset. And if and when it ever went to court and people walk from court and nothing's done, you tend to think, well, the system's rigged and it's all. But in reality, it got tainted at the very beginning by how we defined it. I only give you this example because this is how we're repeatedly losing in our processes and court and our cases because the words we're using to describe it are incorrect, not factual from the beginning, but more importantly, the words we're using to describe it will never survive the scrutiny of the law because the words are wrong. So let me see if I can get Tammy here. So let me approve Tammy. I think I got it. So Tammy, uh, hang on, let me figure out if I've got it right. You should have been approved to ask your question, right? And so, Tammy, you have to unmute. I think I gave you the approval. I had a, I saw you wanted to speak. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I didn't catch the end of what you just said, but I wholeheartedly agree that the whole idea of the rhetoric around how we are approaching this issue is not effective. It may be effective in our, like in our own groups of people who are going to go, yeah, yeah, or whatever, but it's not legally effective and it's not politically effective. Correct. And we need to start thinking about how we're going to win and, um, and that means, you know, and sometimes I, you know, I, I admit that sometimes, sometimes I get a little, you know, over exuberant as well. Um, and that's something that I have to watch. And I really appreciate you saying that because words really do matter. And I have seen that over and over again in, in my campaign that I've done as well. And what we have to do is not get just people who are, you know, maybe agree with us on everything to agree with us, but we have to get 
everyone to agree with us. Does that make sense? Um, it, we lose, you're right. We lose people. We lose people when we're not being factual. And it, it's for several reasons. We take, a, we take multiple hits on credibility. When you proclaim that $168,000 was taken as a contra campaign contribution and it's all fraud, and that ends up not to be the case, you've taken a credibility hit and the system's taken a credibility hit. If we had standards to educate people, that's why I attempt to discuss everything from an education standpoint, we would be talking about this properly from the moment. Because see, what we actually really need to do is we need to eliminate as many periods and exclamation points as we can when it comes to investigations and deal just with the question mark. So instead of saying, hey, this is $168,000 of illegal campaign contributions, it's really as when I look at this and I see this pattern and I see $168,000 anonymous, what I think is, could this be the same type of money laundering that the mafia does or that gangs do? And I got to the same place. But the question mark versus the definitive period or the exclamation point is what has to be removed so we don't get ourselves in these crossfires that I think destroy all of our credibility. With that, if anyone else has questions, I'll take more questions. But let me go. Let me go further um, a little bit more in this, because my topic is the battle over voting machines and why words matter. So let me ask you a question. Let's go back to 2020. When most people woke up and realized that, oh my God, something is horribly wrong with our elections. And we started kind of paying attention and we looked at it and go, wow, this stuff's broken. Now, if I asked you to go back to everything that went wrong from an investigative standpoint, if I asked you to go back, backwards in time, to everything that potentially went wrong in 2020, you might come up with things like, well, hell, we had the pandemic. Uh, then, you know, all business was shut down. And then we had social distancing and we had all this other stuff then you would eventually get to if you just named the events that changed our course in 2020 you would then eventually get to the point and all of our voting was predominantly mail-in ballots which is what happened predominantly across the united states now put a pin in that for a moment and let me ask you a question if it is specifically the machines, in other words, if the way the system steals our elections is 
specifically the machines, then I want you to understand, pandemic or not, it was still the same machines as before. Pandemic or not, it was still the same scanners and tally machines as before. So the way I'm asking you to look at this is, okay, if it really was the machines, why did all the other events occur? Meaning, if they only needed to get into the systems and modify the votes, why dump all of the mail-in ballots? Think about that just for a moment. I'm just trying to expand your dimension of thought on this. The question is, would you even need the mail-in ballots if it was the machines? Now, let's just say it's Dr. Evil and it's a devious plan, okay? And let's take some of the facts we learned during this process just to equate was it literally the voting machines? And understand, we've been fighting voting machine lawsuits since the 80s. We went to a almost de facto voting machine standard by what was created with the Hanging Chad debacle in 2000. But let's just think about the facts. Number one, we know that one of the plausible reasons for a pandemic was to keep people from showing up at the polls. Here's why. When I was sitting down with President Trump the last time and we're talking, he asked me point blank, with all of this going on, why did I win in 2016 then? And I explained to him, sir, they were operating off of old historical data. They expected America to do the same, be the same, react the same. Why? Because the liberals were doing the same and reacting the same and doing the same with media, meaning bashing Donald Trump. However, the wild card was they could never account for the charisma and the likability of the man that caused people to get up off their butt and engage. And therefore, it was the wild card of people coming in to vote, people activating that they could have never accounted for. And so that was their, and true, their holy shit moment, right? Now, if you now knew that that's what occurred in 2016, what you really have to do is you've got to move the system to as much of a controlled system as possible. Now, what does that mean? You got to keep people home. You've got to make sure there's exceptionally limited oversight. You got to have a reason for observers not to be close. You have to have a reason to take all of these precincts, which are scattered by the thousands, and push them down to a very small controllable circle. Let's take Maricopa, 748 precincts, they push down to uh, 200. 
And then you've got to get as many ballots in system you can get that you could give everybody who possibly lived and breathed, dead or alive, ever been on a voting roll, and you've got to get these ballots out there. you got to get them out there because you're going to need them to basically make sure you get to the end game. So with that plausible ability, and you think about 2020, I just want to re-ask you the question, was it the voting machines? If it's all the same machines and it's all the same systems and it's just pulled down to a smaller area, did a smaller amount of machines do more digital work or did they need the paper? Now, I'm going to go a little bit further because from an investigation standpoint, all law is ruled on what's called the balance of probabilities. It's called BOP, B-O-P, the balance of probabilities. You know this is Lady Justice. She's blind, but she's holding a scale. Now, the scale in her hand depicts basically what's known as 51%. The moment the scale goes from being equal, all things considered equal, Okay, the moment it goes from being equal and tips to one side, the scales of justice tip. That's why she's holding a scale. And that's the hurdle when it comes to law of determining what are the odds that this happened, meaning BOP, balance of probability. Remember, we're not trying a, a murder case. And so all that has to happen is on its face value with the facts do one do the facts lean one way or the other balance of probabilities now i just told you about all of these ballots i just told you about you know they got to keep people from walking in they got to keep people from doing this they got to send everybody in the world that should have never ever been on a voting list or whatever they just got to dump the hell out of them because you know it's an uncontrolled thing you're not really going to check ids etc now, let's dig a little bit deeper. Were they trying to tip the scales? And we'll use Maricopa as an example. We found out in Maricopa County a few things. Number one, when all of us were um, going uh, to our 4th of July in 2020, that's the first time they really put the kibosh on us. Traveling, you can't see family, don't get out, et cetera, et cetera. They wanted to shut everything down. And so that was the 4th of July. The mailings for ballots in the United States of America has to be set in stone by the first week in September for the United States Post Office. Because, see, the United States Post Office has to prepare for all of the mailing of ballots. So remember those dates. Remember that it was really in July when we get to full bone lockdowns, don't go anywhere. And remember that the post office has to know by September. Well, two things happened that we discovered during this investigation. The first thing we discovered during this investigation is that Runbeck, who handles the elections for Maricopa County, who in fact prints the ballot, handles the voter rolls, um, 
checks to see if people are good, checks to see if the signatures are done, reprints any bad ballots or anything like that, takes in all the overrun ballots, handles all, gets all the mail in. They literally, it's like a one-stop shop. They That company, in order to get prepared for mailing ballots more than have ever been mailed in history, because they operate in 16 states, by the way, the first week in March of 2020, they placed the single largest order in history for ballot stuffing machines. That means to take the ballot information, coordinate with the envelope, and stuff the ballot in the envelope. Now, Maricopa, yes, has always been uh, a mail-in county for almost a decade. However, for 2020, it meant everybody was going to get a ballot. So I ask you a few questions. The question I ask you is, how did Runbeck know the first week in March to place an order for ballot stuffing machines that the rest of the United States didn't realize they were going to have to go to until actually the last few weeks of August? How did they know that far in advance? Now, I'll take you to another fact. In our United States mail system, the way if somebody was to send uh, the president uh, a letter of, with anthrax or to Congress or to something like that, right? They were going to send anthrax. When that comes through the postal system, and let's say it got to a, a legislator, they look at the envelope. What they're able to do is they go back to the post office and they use a thing called mail cover. And they find that envelope everywhere it appeared in the system. They're looking at the front and the back image. They're using image ID of the envelope. And they can track it all the way back through the system through that thing called mail cover. Now, before 2020, that mail cover program stood in place on average seven years. In other words, anybody in law enforcement, forensics, government, anything like that, lawsuits, you could go back and you could get the mail cover images for seven years back. However, April of 2020, for some reason, our United States post office changed the mail cover program and said we will only hold those images for 30 days now that's completely the opposite of any law enforcement we'll only hold them for 30 days and so what that did is it undid the mail cover program and as the early mail starts going out and then as all these other ballots are mailed they only held the image for 30 days. Now, as you know, in Maricopa, we knew election day 2020, there was a problem. We didn't get any ballots or information to look at for the full forensic audit until late April. In fact, they really weren't delivered till May. So, you know, that 30 day window was blown to crap. And in fact, within the 30 days, nobody even had standing in Arizona to actually know we were going to get them. Now, as soon as Biden got in and was declared president, the mail went back 
to its regular program again. So now we have another piece of evidence that said, if the company that mailed the ballots knew or handled the ballots, knew they were going to be stuffing, how, how in the hell did they know to order these machines in March? And how did, how and why did they turn off the mail cover system like in April and carry it all the way through the election and only turned it back on after, you know, Biden was set in. Now there's only one answer. It destroyed the evidence. It made the evidence not available. See, because one of the first things I was fighting for to prove that the mail-in ballots was the issues is if we could have got all of those images of all of those ballots, technology would allow us to recreate every name and address that got a ballot and we'd have something to measure against. But see, these guys are running a criminal enterprise. It's very rare they're going to leave a stone like that unturned. And they have to cover them. And, and most, uh, I was the only person in the United States asking for it, for the investigation. But they knew somewhere down the road, somebody's going to ask for it. So what they did is they made sure they blocked it. Now, when you take that information with everything set up to the pandemic, everything set up with spacing, every excuse used. Oh, you can't have all these poll watchers. Well, you got to stand six feet away. You got to be in a mask. Remember, the mask also hid people's identities. The mask also hid the identities of most of the people dropping too many ballots at drop boxes. The mass served a different reason. It was able to hide the rioters, hide the people that were stealing ballots from mailboxes, going down the street, pulling out as many ballots as they could. It hid the face of all the people stuffing ballots. It hid the uh, face of people working the elections that should have never worked the elections. When you take all of these facts together and you look at them based on the rule of law, the balance of probabilities, then you very easily see and understand this was one coordinated effort. But what was the coordinated effort designed around? And you can only come up with it was designed around the physical ballot and the blocking of people to see what was taking place with the physical ballot. And if you look at it that way, and you realize that's what they were protecting against, that's what they didn't want people to see. Now I go back and I resubmit to you a different question. If that was really it, was it the machines? And my answer that I continually come up with is, no, it was not the machines. It was every system put in place prior to anyone running even one ballot through the machines. Because just like any good magic trick, the magic trick happens before you even see the big reveal. And that's actually what they did to us and so as you saw by mrs fan today and if you pay attention to the words 
this is why one i harp on it so much but it's also why people get mad and say i support coomer and dominion no i support winning in a court of law and if we keep on describing these things wrong and we keep on allow ourselves to be misdirected we're going to get clobbered because here we set we've known since the 80 our 80s our voting machines were broken and bad we've known since the 80s but yet we're still fighting the machine now here's my last few comments on this number one when you focus on these items as machines since a machine has a literal uh description and since the machine has specific functions and since they keep on saying the voting machines as i've always said let's melt the voting machines into prison bars when we keep on focusing on that we're doing the same thing that we've done for 44 years and got no results well when you keep on doing the same thing over and over expecting a different results that's the definition of insanity but i also want to tell you something else that everybody needs to look at when we focus on the machines we are disfocused against the people the procedures and the software here's why as i've said it and i'll say it again machines don't do anything they're not instructed to do but when we concentrate on the machines we're not enabled to go to the bigger leap and what is the bigger leap frankly folks i don't care about the county supervisors i don't give a rat's ass about little ricky richter richter in maricopa right he's just a puppet like any of them you know who i really care about i want to talk to the developers and coders who delivered the software i want to talk to the tech people that were responsible for updates and what was on it now did you see that in any of these cases no and when you focus on the machines what it enables to happen is they get to talk around semantics and they get to keep on putting county talking heads in front of you people who don't really know how all this works but when we shift our directions to how it's actually done and we focus on the people the paper and the programs we push past these veils what if in arizona nobody ever talked about the screwing machines and people weren't saying it changed votes what if that wasn't the dialogue i submit to you if that hadn't been created as the national damn dialogue the machines changed the votes Here's what would have happened. We would have stood a better chance to get into the printer. We would have stood a better chance to get to the software teams. I want to subpoena the software teams. I don't want to hear from the county recorder that not only does they not know how the software works, they wouldn't know if anything was nefarious there and they're going to keep their butts out of it. But when you put a tech person on the stand and I want to know exactly what was in this stack exactly what was your responsibility to do what's it designed to do if somebody knew 
everything in the software, what could they do nefariously? We missed all of that. We missed every bit of that in all of these court cases, every one of them. I submit to you, it's because we focused on machines. Last but not least, I can tell you right now across America, because I get a tremendous amount of calls from states, and it kind of goes like this. Oh, my God, uh, the typical cast of bow tie characters, they're here on our state, and they're working, and they're going to put in the Lindell plan, and people just don't understand. So let me ask you a question, and I ask this honestly as you try to go back and assess, are we fighting this correctly? That's it. First off, if you found out that there were extra Wi-Fi's in any voting precinct, like we already know happens, like you will already find there. But if you found out there was extra Wi-Fi in the precincts because you have this Wi-Fi snifter, does it root out anything nefarious? Well, the answer is no, because I can tell you across America, there are a hundred plausible reasons why there is Wi-Fi there. We saw it in Cobb County Courthouse. Different things are set up, but, but, but let's even go further. Number two, if you found a voting machine that actually had a modem active on it with Wi-Fi, what would it change from what we know now? It would change nothing. And the reason is because you would still have to prove that was a nefarious connection. You would have to know where it came from and where it went. You would have to know exactly what votes it changed. And you would have to know who did it benefit? Now, why is that key? See, in these elections, and I can tell you from the counterfeit ballots that we discovered in Maricopa, 20 plus thousand of them. Some were for Biden, some were for Trump, some were for independence. See, it's not the hammer like you think, and that's where we get misled. They inserted 145,000 votes, and you think that there's this big old swath of votes there. That's just not how it works. They spread them out amongst everybody, every candidate. They spread them out amongst every party. We're dealing with minute changes, not, not changes in orders of magnitudes. So it's all buried in the wash. And so that's the point. Even if you find a machine communicating, you have to know exactly which ballot it was, which vote it changed, and who it benefited. Now, the Lindell plan is an after-the-fact plan. Okay, we're going to be watching the election. We're going to have these great mechanical devices, and they're going to prove the machines are connected to the Internet. Well, folks, I think we know that. But let's just look at this as battle strategy. Do we want to be fighting this after the election has occurred? Do we want to be fighting this when we keep on getting our butts handed to us in lawsuits? Is the lawsuits for that kind of stuff, which is very hard to prove on the machines, is that a good use of our money or our donations? So what I submit to you is just an alternative way to look at it.
if we focus on people, paper, and programs and where the fungibility is, all you have to prove is the election was not run correctly. See, when an election is not run correctly or things that are done are unauthorized or the things that are done are out of compliance or not within the measure they're supposed to be, you have the absolute right by law to just redo it. So I ask you, what's better to fight on compliance standards or is it better to fight on, oh, the machines changed the vote and it's this or whatever, when we can't prove where the votes went because that's how they designed the machine. Because remember, the moment the ballot is separated from the envelope, you no longer know who the voter was and you can never put them back together. And that is by design. And that's why I'm asking everybody, you need to get involved in this battle over voting machines and words, because in court, we have to have, we have to have absolutes. We cannot just assume these people have the same morals as us. They do not. We cannot assume they want to get to the bottom of it. We cannot. They want to ignore it. And so I'm asking you maybe to become a little bit better student of words and how words matter. And I would highly recommend to you that you might consider, you might consider studying all of Fannie Willis's and Nathan Wade's testimony that just took place in Georgia and watch how they play on the pivot of words because if you can pivot on the word, you can get away with it and you cannot be held accountable. And that is why words matter. Thank you guys for joining me. I appreciate every one of you. Please share the spaces. We have a long way to go. We're getting there, but we have to be able to come together and fight this fight more effectively than what we're doing now.